Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl, and happy British Open Week, the last great sporting event before football, which is still a month and a half away, so let's enjoy it while we have it. If you've not yet signed up for my newsletter, please go and do so. It's at chrisrawl.com. Go, there's a subscribe button. All you do is click it and put your email address in every Wednesday morning. You'll be getting a newsletter that comes from me that ties into this show that hopefully in some way helps expand understanding and passion for the world of sports. If you've not done that, go and do it. If you have done it, good job. Go and watch the British Open and be happy about your choices in life. Today, we are going to talk about my favorite subject, the human brain. And alongside that, the way that we examine the brain in order to search for yourself. George Saunders is a very talented writer. He's written a handful of books, 10th of December, an award-winning collection of short stories that I've read. He's written Lincoln and the Bardo, which is my favorite novel of his. A very, very unique and interesting take on Abraham Lincoln in a very alternate reality. Uh, And recently, George published a book called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. It's kind of a writing tutorial, almost. He teaches writing, and this class that he teaches, it's for the elite of the elite when it comes to writers. He says they take 600 or 700 applications per year and whittle it down to six students, you know? So we're talking about the very best people at their craft, and they come into this program, and George takes them from this really, really, really gifted level and hopefully unlocks... Uh, this this thing within them. So I, I'm reading this book right now, and there's a paragraph that I came across yesterday that really stood out to me that I'm going to use as the starting point for today's show. And this is what George says about this program. What we try to do over the next three years is help them achieve what I call their iconic space, the place from which they will write the stories only they could write, using what makes them uniquely themselves their strengths, weaknesses, obsessions, peculiarities, the whole deal. At this level, good writing is assumed. The goal is to help them acquire the technical means to become defiantly and joyfully themselves. End quote. So that speaks to me on a lot of levels. On a writing level, obviously, because I am a writer and that's something that I really believe in, everything he's saying there. But, I mean, you can expand that paragraph out to any pursuit that you are wanting to get better at in life. We're not talking about beginners here. You know, we're not talking about you have no idea how to write. This is where you put a sentence. This is how you capitalize a letter. This is why and when. We're talking about people who come to the table with skills already in place, and they're looking to take that next step. They're looking to keep evolving and improving and hopefully find this this self that is truly themselves, as, as George Saunders is saying, you know, this become defiantly and joyfully themselves. It's a really good line as far as a search for improvement and just being better at the stuff that you care about, right? It's kind of sharpening your mind in search of your truest self. That's how I read that paragraph. You know, the tools are in place. Now we got to dive into the mind. Uh, We got to unlock these rooms that maybe haven't been opened yet. And once we do, it's kind of a whole new world getting opened up and I'm going, okay, I thought I was good at writing or I thought it was good at basketball or I thought I was good at my job or hockey or whatever. And then suddenly you're realizing, oh no, this is the next step. This is where the brain comes in, right? We're talking about 
creating separation amongst people who are gifted and skilled at their craft. This is where it occurs, right up top, right in your brain, okay? And I've always been fascinated with this area more than anything. You know, there's the body, there's the brain. The brain is the area that I've gravitated towards probably because I don't have the body. Uh, when you're five foot eight and 150 pounds and you're trying to engage in these athletic uh, competitions, that's not the greatest body is probably how I put that. I'm not going to be the fastest. I'm not going to be the quickest. I'm not going to jump the highest, any of the things that you normally associate with athleticism. So in order to participate in those things and not just get swamped, I would always gravitate towards the mind and go, okay, I am what I am physically. Once I've practiced and practiced and practiced, how do I go about sharpening what's upstairs? And I kind of refer to my basketball career for this arc because basketball is something I played since I was a little kid. It's the first sport that I really loved playing. And I would go and shoot hoops for hours and hours and hours. I mean, all day, every day, shooting three, shooting free throws, playing one-on-one, -on -one, playing team, I'd go on down the list to the point where the physical stuff, it was just on autopilot. You know, I never really thought about this is where your right elbow should be when you're rising up for a jump shot. This is how your feet should be set when you were pulling up for a 12 foot jumper. This is where you should be aiming on the backboard. It was just it became natural because of the repetition that had been put in all of the physical stuff. It was what it was with me. And as I grew older and just continued playing basketball and I wanted to play pickup all day and I want to play city league all day and all I want to do is play basketball up until I'm about 30 years old. That's where I thought a lot about the brain and just how can I think my way through a basketball game and how do I get better because of my understanding of the basketball court, of the angles that occur when people are moving around, of the angles that I can create by my body, even though it's not the fastest or the quickest. How can I continually just refine these margins that in turn allow me to stay afloat on a basketball court where I'm far from the most physically gifted player? That was kind of the basketball progression. And I think a lot of people have probably found that particular path in one form or another over the course of their life where you run up against a ceiling from a, a physical perspective and the ways that you have to improve suddenly become all about the brain. Now, I've been thinking about this because A, it's something I always think about. B, I'm reading George Saunders, which in turn is making me think more about it. C, I'm just reading a bunch right now. So I'm thinking even more about uh, this, this process of why do I use the brain in the way that I do it? And what are ways that I can change, improve all those kinds of things as it pertains to my thinking and the way that I utilize my brain? So this is probably, I don't know, maybe six months or so ago. Um, there's a, he was a former hockey player. Now he is the coach of the Montreal Canadiens. His name is Martin St. Louis. And I was reading an article about him right after he'd been hired by the Montreal Canadiens. And it really got my juices flowing because what he was talking about is, uh, it's kind of, it's chicken soup for the soul for a person like me who usually thinks more in terms of the brain rather than the body, because that's just the area that I feel like I understand more. Now, Martin St. Louis was a very accomplished hockey player. Nobody thought he would be because his career was, it followed a very unlikely path. He was undrafted, which is crazy in the NHL. You have 10 trillion rounds. You have people getting drafted out of who knows where. Martin St. Louis was not drafted. He's five foot eight, my height. Weighed a little more, 180 pounds. His legs were tree trunks. But by no means did you ever look at St. Louis and go, physically, this guy's just imposing in a sport that demands a lot of things from you physically. Yet somehow he cracks his way into the NHL. He has a late breakout season. It's age 27. He's playing with the Tampa Bay Lightning at the time. 
has this breakout season and suddenly, you know, things start clicking into place and he has a, a really awesome NHL career, Hall of Fame level career, actually. Plays at a super high level until age 39 when he retires with the New York Rangers. He has over a thousand points in his NHL career. Again, very accomplished NHL player. I watched all of his career. I was a fan of him because the physical gifts were not necessarily there, but just he f- always found ways to stay afloat on the rink. Now, going back to him being hired by the Canadians. The time I'm reading an article from Arpan Basu, he writes for The Athletic. I came across some stuff that I, I want to share today. I flagged it. I hadn't had the correct time to talk about it. And now that we're here talking about the brain and all the ways that it can be utilized, this is what we are going to read. So this comes from Arpan Basu of The Athletic. It had been roughly a week since Martin St. Louis had been named coach of the Canadians when he walked into the interview room at the team's practice facility in Broussard and spelled out his number one principle when it comes to player development. First of all, player development was not solely reserved for young players. But secondly, and most importantly, player development was not necessarily the same as skill development. As far as St. Louis was concerned, it had nothing to do with hands and feet. It had to do with the brain. St. Louis says this, Once they get here, can they get faster? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Can they get stronger? Yeah, some kids, yes. But in general, and especially by the time they're 25, 26, they're all close to being tapped into all those things. And I don't know, the one thing I think, I'm not sure where they're tapped. And I think that's why I was able to have a long career. I feel my brain just kept getting better and better and better. This didn't fall in line with hockey's conventional wisdom that hockey intelligence, something more commonly referred to as hockey IQ, could be taught. It has long been assumed that was innate. But St. Louis experienced the development of his own intelligence as a player, so he knew that wasn't necessarily true, at least not for him. End quote. A lot of really interesting stuff to unpack there. Because I do agree this, the natural assumption about basketball IQ, hockey IQ, football IQ, is that you either have it or you don't. It's really interesting to hear a player say, no, 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 no. I learned as my career was going on that skill development is very different from player development because that occurs inside my own brain. And I can attest, especially a dude who, when he's talking about, you're pretty much tapped out physically by 25, 26, and he's having his breakout season at age 27. It's an interesting timeline to line up and go, hmm. So this guy's saying he was able to continually sharpen and improve his hockey intelligence, that is pretty interesting as a pathway to improvement, especially within sports when you're physically peaking at whatever age and you're trying to hang on for dear life as you get to 30 and 35 and your physical skills are declining. So going back to myself, uh, basketball, you know, I kind of felt that within my own playing career, if you want to call it that, the most broke down career in the history of careers, but we'll refer to it just for the sake of ease. But I also felt kind of that similar uh, push that St. Louis was talking about, which the physical stuff, yes, it was autopilot. You can call it. I don't think it's natural. I think it's just something that you do from when you're young and you don't remember how you did it, whether you were taught, whether you learned from your friends, whatever. And it just became a natural autonomous response by your body. And the things that you were actually able to sharpen as you got older involved the intelligence side and the understanding side basketball IQ side, which I can attest to, I was always thinking in those terms and trying to improve within that particular space because my physical skills, I was going to be five foot eight. I was going to be 150 pounds. 
and I was not going to be quick and I was not going to be fast and I was not going to have a high vertical. So my basketball career kind of is petering out at the time when I start getting really into golf. And indeed, my basketball career, I call it quits because it was taking too much of a physical toll on my body and golf was the next iteration of what I wanted to uh, pursue from a competitive standpoint. And it seemed really appealing because I thought, whoo, I can do this when I'm old and this is the most maddening thing ever. And I don't even know how to do it because I'm coming late in life. There's not the natural feel of a golf swing. And in fact, it was the exact opposite. Well, I got to build up all these physical skills before I can even think about diving into the brain. So this is years and years, right? I have a bunch of people in my life who I coincidentally enough play basketball with from an earlier age who are all really good golfers played since they were young. A handful of them played collegiately, just again, really good at this sport. And so they're always getting in my ear saying, you got to play, you got to play. I go, okay, you know, we'll give it a shot. My mid to late twenties can't hit a golf ball, can't chip, can't putt, can't do any of just the basic physical things that are necessary for golf. So now I'm just, I go, all right, I'm going to get better at this. This is, this sport is not going to triumph over me. And so now I start picking their brains and I go, how do you, why, why is my golf swing so bad? I'm trying to hit it like a baseball. This is how I grip it. I'm gripping it like a baseball bat. They're going, well, let's start with the basics. You know, let's treat you like you're six years old because essentially you are. We have to build up the physical skills. Think back to the George Saunders quote. At this point in time, I'm not anywhere near these elite level people. Now we're talking about the mind. I'm at the most basic. You need to understand how to write a sentence and put a period on it. It doesn't have to be good. You just need to understand these are the basic necessities in order to create a paragraph, then create a story. Golf. I need a swing that can lift the ball off of the ground. Okay, let's go from there. I need to understand how to hit a chip that flies a little bit in the air and then kind of leads out. Okay, there we go. I need to understand how to try and hit a putt on a normal plane so I'm not slicing it and hooking it and stopping my stance and jabbing it and all this kind of stuff. So we get to the point where, and and I'm talking about years and years, okay? This is a long ass time. Probably why this sport is both addictive and maddening and all of the good and the bad that you always hear people describe golf in terms of get all the physical skills in place. I'm feeling great about life. I'm getting better. You know, I'm 15 handicap. Okay. This is sweet. Now I'm a 10 handicap. Oh, great. That is awesome. And then I run into the true barrier, which I didn't understand at the time, which is golf is the truest descent into the mind, which at first was just confounding. And it almost broke my brain. Me, a person who takes, again, a lot of pride in my ability to think my way through things. And I'd never ran into anything in any other athletic forum that approximated this type of mental challenge. And so at first, it very nearly breaks my brain. Because I'm looking around and I'm going, why why can I not get better? Why am I, you know, I'm, I'm plateauing right here. It feels like should be, I jumped from a 26 handicap to a 10 handicap in a small amount of time. Why am I not now a four handicap? Why am I not a scratch golfer? So luckily I have people who are really good at golf in my life. And two of them, both of who played collegially. One who was a little bit older, one who's about my age. I had separate discussions on two different occasions with both of these people. Just kind of voicing this. I go, I'm very frustrated by this. What, what the hell's going on? You know, I've, I was improving really fast and Now suddenly I've just, it seems like I've hit a wall and we've gone three months and I'm playing every day and I'm no better than I was three months ago. And I actually might even be a little bit worse. And 
I got to hit my drive longer. or Maybe I got to be a little bit better with my irons. And both of them go, okay, you're obviously taking golf very seriously. And so we will help you in a very serious manner. And we will stress to you, this is the hardest part of golf where you are at in your career, because now it becomes more mental than physical. And the demands that this game places upon you from a mental standpoint are more rigorous than anything you will have experienced in any other sport. So I go, okay, well, we'll explain, you know, they go, this game, when you get to a very specific level of skill, which takes a long ass time, but now you got physical tools in place. You can chip, you can putt, you can hit approach shots, you can drive. Maybe you're not the best at any or all of those, but you have more than enough physical tools in place to be a scratch golfer. Now the area of improvement boils down more to your brain and being able to think and react and whether all of the adverse situations and circumstances that golf is going to place in your path, whether that's errors on your own part, whether that's the weather and mother nature having a say, whether that's just, uh, there's a million different things that can arise in any given golf round that are going to challenge you mentally. And I've seen this before sometimes, you know, this is kind of what sent me down the path of, hmm, I need to understand more about my brain as it pertains to this individual sport. Because as I was getting better, I would find myself reacting and thinking on the golf course like I never would elsewhere. There are two incidences. One time I broke my phone because I was very angry after this. I missed some putt on hole nine and I was going to the back and I was mad and I slammed my phone and broke it, which is very different from how I react to literally anything ever in my life. I'm not an angry person and I don't really ever react like that. So it was kind of, I didn't think about it, but then when the round was over, I'm like, that was so weird. What in the hell was going on? Very strange that my reaction was the opposite of what my normal reaction is in any other situation. And about a year later, same thing. Hole number 12 at the course that I play, three putt. I got a nice look at birdie and I end up just three putting for a bogey and I'm so mad and I smash my putter and it breaks this cool Odyssey two ball that I wish I still had, but I'm too much of a dumbass and I broke it. And that was kind of the click into place point of, okay, I don't play good golf when I'm mad. I don't know why I'm reacting like this, but let's get to the bottom of this and try to understand A, why I'm thinking like this and B, how I can rewire my brain on the golf course in order to respond differently. Now we're talking about years and years and years and years and years of the physical tools have, eh, some have improved slightly, but for the most part, the physical tools that I have right now are pretty much what I had five years ago. And the improvement that has occurred has been on the mental side and stepping inside my brain and going, how do I improve my golf intelligence? How do I put myself in situations time and time and time and time and time again? A lot of them that are going to be negative so I can understand how I react and be, if I need to change those things, how I go about changing those things. So this took me into the world of meditation, which it's a really cool world for reasons that don't even have to do with golf. But golf is the reason that I got into meditating because I wanted to be able to get to a place on the golf course where my reaction was never in anger and it was always calm and measured and leaned into what I believe my strength is, which is my mind. You know, my physical tools, same as in golf as in any other thing. I'm not going to be the best at anything physically. A, I came too late to golf. And B, I'm just not going to swing as fast and as hard as people who are bigger and stronger and have much more technical expertise backing them up. 
but I have physical gifts in, in my own way. You know, the one area that I've really leaned into is around the greens. Just sometimes there's a, a natural feel that people have in one area or the other. For me, it's on and around greens. That's just the way that my body has gravitated towards. I don't know why it's just is the other area that I'm continually trying to sharpen is the mind. So I go, if I can master hundred yards and in, which is the area that for whatever reason, my body naturally is just more tuned into. And then if I can master that mental side as much as it can be mastered, that's a really, really, really solid and intriguing foundation for a golf game. So I start meditating a bunch. This is again, this is years. And I never really thought of it like this. This is the first forum that opened one of those rooms in my mind that was previously closed and started getting me to think in a little bit different manner than I used to. Just that, again, that constant process of evolution that I think is really important to life and joy and the pursuit of things you're passionate about. And one of the guided meditations I was listening to was just kind of talking about people don't think of the brain like they do the rest of their body, but you should treat it like a muscle. It's the same concept as going and lifting weights in a gym. First, it's going to be strenuous and weird and foreign, and you might not know how to do it correctly, and you might have bad form when you're doing a bicep curl, but over the course of time, you'll start to see your muscles grow, and it'll start to seem more natural, and then you'll really be able to enter into more rooms in your mind that were previously locked and go, hmm, I never could have gotten to this point where I'm bench pressing 215 pounds because when I started, I was just bench pressing the bar. It's that same mindset, you know, and that was really revelatory to me, a person who was searching for the answer to the question of how do you train your mind to respond quickly and effectively in any situation, especially on the golf course? A lot of other areas I felt really, I feel really good about how my brain either naturally or has been trained to react. Golf course, oh no. <laughs> that was the one area where it was just hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. I, I seem to need more anchors within the way that I can think on a golf course. So over the course of years, you know, it's been... It's an ongoing evolution. It's just a continual refinement. It's never, I used the term mastery earlier and that was actually wrong because I don't think mastery exists in this particular facet. I just think it's an ongoing back and forth between your brain and your brain. <laughs> really weird to think about in that way, but it's just this thing that exists within yourself that maybe you don't necessarily know to its truest extent. You know, remember George Saunders, think of his words. That last sentence, he says, at this level, good writing is assumed. The goal is to help them acquire the technical means to become defiantly and joyfully themselves. I love that. You know, that search of everybody is really different and everybody brings a lot of different strengths, weaknesses, peculiarities to still a George Saunders word. But you can always hash something out by being yourself. You know, finding your truest self in whatever capacity that may be, in whatever forum that may be. For me, finding my truest self on the golf course, okay, ongoing discussion. It's the holy grail that everybody's looking for, that even when you find it and tap into it, it's just fleeting and it will continually elude you. And it's always this search to get back to the point where, for me, you know, my best golf is played in the most calm and steady state. And if you watch me, you'd go, I don't know if that was good or bad. You just saw my reactions. And for me, that truest self is my insides mirror my outsides. When I can get to that level, then when I can grab that holy grail of, okay, what's my truest self emotionally and 
mentally on the golf course. It's that the feeling that I have when I'm on hole four and I flare an iron right and it's headed into the water and I know it's going to be, my heart does not change. My mind does not change. I don't want to slab my cub a little bit against the ground. I don't want to go, what the hell are you doing? I don't want to go, oh no, I don't even want to do, I don't want to do anything. My pulse doesn't change in any way. Nothing changes. There's nothing inside me that would be a trigger for, oh, that was something bad that happened. It's just, this is one thing that occurred and now I need to go and do another thing, which in this case is I'm taking a drop in the drop zone. Let's worry about trying to get this next shot into the hole. I want to be able to react the same way there and feel the same way there as if I have putted a 90 footer in for Eagle on hole 18 to cap off my round and my heart is the same and my mind is the same and I don't want to scream and throw my hands up in the air. I just go, okay, that was one thing that happened and now my round's over and it's time to take a true assessment of what went into this round. Just this ongoing process over and over of think, 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 think and use your brain and try to get better with it. Martin St. Louis stuff, right? How do I develop golf intelligence? How do I continually to treat that like a muscle over and over and over and over and over and over? This is also in my mind because I was talking, this is probably about a week ago. And my friend's dad, I ran into him who's gotten really into golf and he's probably, you know, he's at a place that I was five-ish years ago. So he was asking me, he goes, I, I mean, I'm, I can play pretty good golf, you know, and I can shoot, you know, I'll go play nine holes and I'll shoot 39 or 40 or 41. And, you know, I can go play 18. I'll shoot 85 or something. He's like, but I don't know how to really get better. And I go, okay, well, I'll tell you, (laughs) I'll tell you what I was told. And it's probably not what you want to hear because it's just years and years of pain and suffering, (laughs) but also a really rewarding and in my opinion, enriching experience about finding your truest self. And identifying what that is and trying to aspire to be that over and over and over. Just something that's really fruitful in every facet of life. So I gave him that speech, you know, identical to the one that was given to me by both of my friends. It's like, eh, this part's really hard and it's 98% mental moving forward and 2% physical. Yeah, you can refine what you have, but you can shoot in the 80s. You have enough physical gifts to do a lot in golf, way more than most people. You know, most people who play golf are never going to be able to really shoot in the 80s. People will claim that they are liars. Most people, if you actually made them play by the rules and put every putt in and and do all those things, the vast majority of people who golf cannot shoot in the 80s. So I said, this is just, this is about the descent into the brain. And so I started giving him stuff that I learned about myself. And I go, this, you know, what my truest self is, is going to be different from what yours is. So I can, you know, kind of nudge you along that path, but the path that ultimately you choose, they're on you, you know? Part of why I think this whole process is so appealing. It's not me sitting here and saying, this is how you can be good at golf, and this is how you can be a good writer, and this is how you can be good at these things that, you know, I've come to be competent at throughout my life. The journey is kind of on you, but the first step, yeah, I can push you on. It's the same thing that George Saunders is pushing his students down, saying, let's step into the mind. You have enough skills right now. Let's step into the mind and then start from there. So I mentioned the British Open at the top of this show. 150th Open, St. Andrews Golf Course, just iconic, all the great stuff. And this course is so freaking sweet on a variety of levels. I've been watching it before I've recorded this show. And it's just another uh, reminder of like, Lynx Golf is the best. And this course specifically, I just, I love it. Strictly from a mental aspect, because the amount of thought that has to be put into everything 
over and over and over is immense. It would drain me in ways that I can't even express. And I'm hearing stuff on the broadcast about just the importance of that side. Using the brain, sharpening it, refining it, finding your truest self. And I think about a lot of really interesting discussions that have occurred over the years that on the outside seem like, oh yeah, that, that, that matches up logically. But then the more that I watch and think, I go, that might not be true. One of them that came to mind was John Rom, one of the best golfers in the world, fiery Spaniard. And one of the knocks on him throughout his career, and especially before he'd won uh, at his first major US Open at Torrey Pines. And the knock on him was, this guy's way too angry. You know, look at all these high, there's a million highlights early on in his career of just, he missed a shot and he's smashing his club and he's mother effing this, mother effing that. And he'd, uh, you know, okay, he misses a putt and he's shouting over at his cat and he's angry. And, you know, a lot of people on broadcasts over and over, golf analysts are going, you can't succeed like this. You cannot succeed like this. And they go, he's got he's to learn how to be less angry and that's how he's going to, you know, find his truest self, essentially. Which at first I, I thought was true because, yeah, that's true for me. Absolutely. You know, I, gotta, I have to be complete Zen master. That's the path that I found over the course of years. If I was the John Rom fiery guy who broke his phone in his club like a dipshit, that's not going to result in good golf. That's going to result in me not having a phone and me not having a putter and me shooting a 90 and me going home and just stewing over and going, what is happening in my life? Why am I making these decisions? That's the path that I found. Now, what my mind has been more open to as I've played golf with other people and watched professionals and just really gone down this pathway of thinking about myself and thinking about how other people think. And watching John Rahm win tournaments. And at first he's going, yeah, I, 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 gotta be, I gotta be less angry. And he's always saying stuff like that because I think that he heard that. And he's going, well, I haven't won a major yet. And so maybe I need to tweak some things. And then he's, you know, he's, I'm going to have a kid. And so now this has taught me how to be more, uh, more emotionally even tempered and, and that's normal. And I actually think that all of that was false. And the more that I watch John Rahm and just still see him be angry in present day. And again, he's one of the best golfers in the world. I go, if I had to guess, and I have people like this who I golf with that are incredibly successful golfers that take the exact opposite approach that I do. If I had to guess his truest self on the golf course, the thing that motivates him and sustains him and gets him in the best possible frame of mind to play good golf is lean into your anger. And if you need to mother F yourself because you missed a shot into the pond, great, do it. And then utilize that in order to chip the ball in the hole from the drop zone or chip it next to it, make a bogey, move on to the next hole and string off four straight birdies. It's different from how I need to play, but there are a lot of different ways you can utilize your brain on the golf course. I always think about Tiger Woods when it comes to this. And I thought about it really as this John Rahm discussion was going on and on of like, we do know that Tiger Woods is like on the golf course, one of the angriest people that ever existed. And he used it to focus himself. Tiger Woods would mother F everybody and everything. And anytime he missed a shot, it was smack this, smash this, mother F this. And that's the way that he channeled his brain and focused it to the point of, I'm going to be the best golfer in the world ever by utilizing an approach that is the exact opposite of my own approach. You know, you can take a lot of different paths though. You know, trying to decipher your own brain is one of the hardest challenges in life. doesn't matter what you're trying to be better at writing, golfing, basketball, pick your poison. You know, you all listening have a million different things that you're trying to get better at or improve at 
trying to separate yourself from other people who are really gifted at those things, it's really hard to step inside your brain and try to find those rooms, right? The rooms that are locked. Because the brain is constantly changing in many ways and remaining the same in others. It's just a continual search of, okay, what's this? What's this? I mentioned Tiger, and Tiger is an interesting case study in present day because he's had to change his demeanor as his physical gifts have faded. You know, he strikes me as a significantly less angry person in present day on the golf course. I don't know about him off the course. <laughs> Who knows? No idea what he does in his spare time. But Tiger on the golf course, you've noticed over the last handful of years, just, oh, he seems a little bit more relaxed. He seems just a little bit more friendly. He'll talk to people he's playing with, which is kind of different from what he did in the past when he just, the icy glare, the focus, just essentially being rude to everybody he was around. That was the way that he was able to focus and win. And now, okay, my physical skills, they're not what they once were. I have knee and hips and legs and just issues everywhere. And his demeanor has had to change because I think part of that ongoing process is thinking through what is currently at your disposal. You know, that's a very important facet of increasing your intelligence in golf, riding, life, whatever, you know? So Tiger's demeanor is different. He still has, within the last five years, won a Masters, uh, won tournaments, still somehow competing and making the cut at the Masters and the PGA Championship this year on a body that just seems completely broken. His brain is changing along with his body, you know? I mentioned last show just a lot of quotes from Tiger, but the one that stood out the most to me was him talking after the Masters. And they're going, well, you know, what was this week like? Crazy, you made the cut. And he goes, you know what? I'm really thankful. Just thankful to be out here because I wasn't sure if I could play competitive golf ever again because we didn't know if I was going to have a leg. And I don't, you know, say this is hyperbole or just paying lip service to it. I'm really thankful to be out here. That's something you just would not hear the dude say 25 years ago. And it resonates now in present day because you go, hmm, this is a person who has had the sharpest brain in the history of this sport probably in the history of sports when you consider the mental demands of golf and the way that he just somehow mastered it for a lot of years, a thing that cannot be mastered. And now he's gotten to the point where he goes, okay, I got to change. I got to be different. So I'm going to read one thing to close out the show. Uh, we're going back to Arpan Basu, strangely enough, from The Athletic and talking about Martin St. Louis and just the way that he wants to coach and his own process that life took him through as an undrafted player that spawned a Hall of Fame 1,000-point NHL career, and now he's in charge of coaching. And just he's now thinking in terms of, this is what I learned. This is how I changed. How do I apply that to other people? It is relatively uncommon to see great players become great coaches, largely because great players don't often understand what it is like to be a player who is not great. Except St. Louis is a great player who does understand because he was not always great. He grew into greatness and he firmly believes he can teach his players how to do the same, how to evolve in the middle of their careers into players who can have sustained success even if their physical gifts start leaving them. St. Louis has said the one thing he was elite at as a player was getting better. I think it's important as a player that if you're going to play in this league a long time, St. Louis said, you need to keep evolving as a player. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Go 
and enjoy this British Open. We will reconvene on Tuesday. Enjoy your weekend.